Book One, Chapter Two of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Two. About four o'clock on the afternoon of the day which was to be marked in the annals of Longwindale as that of Mrs. Thornburg's high tea, that lady was seated in the vicarage garden, her spectacles on her nose, a large couvre-pied over her knees, and the Winborough newspaper on her lap. The neighbourhood of this last enabled her to make an intermittent pretence of reading, but in reality the energies of her housewifely mind were taken up with quite other things. The vicar's wife was plunged in a housekeeping experiment of absorbing interest. All her solid preparations for the evening were over, and in her own mind she decided that with them there was no possible fault to be found. The cook, Sarah, had gone about her work in a spirit at once lavish and fastidious, breathed into her by her mistress. No better tongue, no plumper chickens than those which would grace her board to-night were to be found, so Mrs. Thornburg was persuaded, in the district, and so with everything else of a substantial kind. On this head the hostess felt no anxieties. But a tea in the North Country depends for distinction not on its solids or its savouries, but on its sweets. A rural hostess earns her reputation not by a discriminating eye for butcher's meat, but by her inventiveness in cakes and custards. And it was just here, with regard to this bubble reputation, that the vicar's wife of Long Window was particularly sensitive. Was she not expecting Mrs. Seaton, the wife of the rector of Winborough, odious woman, to tea? Was it not incumbent on her to do well, nay, to do brilliantly, in the eyes of this local magnate? And how was it possible to do brilliantly in this matter with a cook whose recipes were hopelessly old-fashioned, and who had an exasperating belief in the sufficiency of buttered wigs and home-made marmalade for all requirements? Stung by these thoughts, Mrs. Thornber had gone prowling about the neighbourhood town of Winborough till the shop-window of a certain newly-arrived confectioner had been revealed to her, stored with the most airy and appetising trifles of a make and colouring quite metropolitan. She had flattened her grey curls against the window for one deliberative moment, had then rushed in, and as soon as the carrier's cart of Long Window, which she was now anxiously awaiting, should have arrived, bearing with it the produce of that adventure, Mrs. Thornburg would be a proud woman, prepared to meet a legion of rector's wives without flinching. Not, indeed, in all respects a woman at peace with herself and the world. In the country, where every household should be self-contained, a certain discredit attaches in every well-regulated mind to getting things in. Mrs. Thornber was also nervous as the thought of the bill. It would have to be met gradually out of the weekly money. For William was to know nothing of the matter, except so far as a few magnificent generalities and the testimony of his own dazzled eyes might inform him. But after all, in this, as in everything else, one must suffer to be distinguished. The carrier, however, lingered and at last the drowsiness of the afternoon overcame even those pleasing expectations we have described, and Mrs. Thornburgh's newspaper dropped unheeded to her feet. The vicarage, under the shade of which she was sitting, was a new grey stone building with wooden gables, occupying the site of what had once been the earlier vicarage house of Longwindale, the primitive dwelling-house of an incumbent whose chapelry, after sundry augmentations, amounted to just twenty-seven pounds a year. The modern house, though it only contained sufficient accommodation for Mr. and Mrs. Thornburg, one guest and two maids, would have seemed palatial to those rustic clerks of the past, 
from whose ministrations the lonely valley had drawn its spiritual sustenance in times gone by. They, indeed, had belonged to another race, a race sprung from the soil and content to spend the whole of life in very close contact and very homely intercourse with their mother earth. Mr. Thornburg, who had come to the valley only a few years before, from a parish in one of the large manufacturing towns, and who had no inherited interest in the Cumbrian folk and their ways, had only a very faint idea, and that a distinctly depreciatory one, of what these mythical predecessors of his, with their strange social status and unbecoming occupations, might be like. But there were one or two old men still lingering in the dale, who could have told him a great deal about them, whose memory went back to the days when the relative social importance of the Dale Parsons was exactly expressed by the characteristic Westmoreland saying, "'If you're not send us a good schoolmaster, a very modern parson'll do you.' And whose slow minds, therefore, were filled with a strong, inarticulate sense of difference, as they saw him pass along the road, and recalled the incumbent of their childhood, dropping in for his crack and his glass of Yale at this or that farmhouse on any occasion of local festivity or driving his sheep to Winborough Market with his own hands, like any other peasant of the Dale. Within the last twenty years, however, the few remaining survivors of this primitive clerical order in the Westmoreland and Cumberland valleys have dropped into their quiet, unremembered graves, and new men of other ways and other modes of speech reign in their stead. And as at Longwindale, so almost everywhere, the change had been emphasised by the disappearance of the old parsonage houses with their stone floors, their parlours lustrous with oak carving on chest or dresser, and their encircling farm buildings and meadows, in favour of an upgrowth of new trim mansions designed to meet the needs, not of peasants, but of gentlefolks. And naturally the churches too have shared in the process of transformation. The ecclesiastical revival of the last half-century has worked its will even in the remotest corners of the Cumbrian country, and soon not a vestige of the homely worshipping places of an earlier day will remain. Across the road, in front of the long window parsonage, for instance, rose a freshly built church, also peaked and gabled, with a spire and two bells and a painted east window, and heaven knows what novelties besides. The primitive whitewashed structure it replaced had lasted long, and in the course of many generations Time had clothed its moss-grown walls, its slated porch and tombstones, warm with rain, in a certain beauty of congruity and association, linking it with the purple distances of the fells and the brawling river bending round the grey enclosure. But finally, after a period of quiet and gradual decay, the ruin of Long Windell Chapel had become a quick and hurrying ruin that would not be arrested. When the rotten timbers of the roof came dropping on the farmers' heads, and the oak benches beneath offered gaps, the geography of which had to be carefully learnt by the substantial persons who sat on them, lest they should be overtaken by undignified disaster. When the rain poured in on the communion table, and the wind raged through innumerable mortalous chinks, even the slowly moving folk of the valley came to the conclusion that somebody'll have to be done. And, by the help of the bishop, and Queen Anne's bounty, and what not, aided by just as many half-crowns as the valley found itself unable to defend against the encroachments of a new and moidering parson, somewhat was done, whereof the results, namely the new church, vicarage, and schoolhouse, were now conspicuous. This radical change, however, had not been the work of Mr. Thornburg, but of his predecessor, a much more pushing and enterprising man, 
whose successful efforts to improve the church accommodation in Longwindale had moved such deep and lasting astonishment in the mind of a somewhat lethargic bishop that promotion had readily been found for him. Mr. Thornburg was neither capable of the sturdy begging which had raised the church, nor was he likely on other lines to reach preferment. He and his wife, who possessed much more salience of character than he, were accepted in the Dale as belonging to the established order of things. Nobody wished them any harm, and the few people they had specially befriended, naturally, thought well of them. But the old intimacy of relation which had once subsisted between the clergyman of Longwindale and his parishioners was wholly gone. They had sunk in the scale. The parson had risen. The old statesmen, or peasant proprietors of the valley, had for the most part succumbed to various destructive influences, some social, some economical, added to a certain amount of corrosion from within. And their place had been taken by leaseholders, less drunken perhaps, and better educated, but also far less shrewd and individual, and lacking in the rude dignity of their predecessors. And, as the land had lost, the church had gained. The place of the Dalesmen knew them no more, but the church and parsonage had got themselves rebuilt, the parson had had his income raised, had let off his glebe to a neighbouring farmer, kept two maids, and drank claret when he drank anything. His flock were friendly enough, and paid their commuted tithes without grumbling. But between them and a perfectly well-meaning, but rather dull, man, who stood on his dignity and wore a black coat all the week, there was no real community. Rejoice in it as we may, in this final passage of Parson Primrose to social regions beyond the ken of Farmer Flamborough, there are some elements of loss, as there are in all changes. Wheels on the road. Mrs. Thornburg woke up with a start, and, stumbling over newspaper and couvre-pied, hurried across the lawn as fast as her short, squat figure would allow, grey curls and cap-strings flying behind her. She heard a colloquy in the distance in broad Westmoreland dialect, and as she turned the corner of the house she nearly ran into her tall cook, Sarah, whose impassive and saturnine countenance bore traces of unusual excitement. "'Mrs. There's no cakes. They've all left behind on the counter at Randall's. Mr. Backhouse says as how he had told old Jim to go for em, and he never went, and Mr. Backhouse he never found out till he got past the breed, and then it were too late to go back. Mrs. Thornber stood transfixed, something of her fresh pink colour slowly deserting her face as she realised the enormity of the catastrophe. And was it possible that there was the faintest twinkle of grim satisfaction on the face of that elderly minx, Sarah? Mrs. Thornber, however, did not stay to explore the recesses of Sarah's mind, but ran with little pattering, undignified steps across the front garden and down the steps to where Mr. Backhouse, the carrier, stood, bracing himself for self-defence. "'Ye may well fret, mum,' said Mr. Backhouse, interrupting the flood of her reproaches with the comparative sang-froid of one who knew that, after all, he was the only carrier on the road, and that the vicarage was five miles from the necessaries of life. "'It's a bad job, and I'm not going to say it isn't. But you just look here, Mum. What's a man to do with a duff thing of me like that, and I can't take a plain order, and spiles a poor man's business as can't help hisself?' And Mr. Backhouse pointed with withering scorn to a small, shrunken old man who sat dangling his legs on the shaft of the cart, and whose countenance wore a singular expression of mingled meekness and composure, as his partner flourished an indignant finger towards him. "'Jim!' cried Mrs. Thornber reproachfully. 
I did think you would have taken more pains about my order.' "'Yes, Mum,' said the old man placidly. "'You might have thought that. It's me, sorry, but I can't help these things sometimes. I don't know good, ordering or ordered like a mad bull. I take your bit of paper to Randall's, and I left it where I'm to mate up. And then, well, well, I went to a friend, and he may have given me a glass of yale. I don't say he did, but he may, I, I won't swear. Omsoever, I's never thought nor mayor about it, nor mayor did John, so he didn't take, till we were just two mile from here. And he's a gone on since. My, and a larruping the poor beast like anything. Mrs. Thorber stood aghast at the calmness of this audacious recital. As for John, he looked on, surveying his brother's philosophical demeanour, at first with speechless wrath, and then with an inscrutable mixture of expressions, in which, however, any one accustomed to his weather-beaten countenance would have probably read a hidden admiration. "'Well, as never,' he explained, when Jim's explanatory remarks had come to an end, swinging himself up onto his seat and gathering up the reins. "'You'd a bold on to tell the missus there to her face, as how you were out tossy-cutter when out to have been doing your lawful business. I'd have done with you, and I'm to blame my customers, and I can't abide so work. You're like an old knife, and I can't make naught o' you, now to back nor edge.' Mrs. Thornber wrung her fat, short hands in despair, making little incoherent laments and suggestions as she saw him about to depart, of which John at last gathered the main purport to be that she wished him to go back to Windborough for her precious parcel. He shook his head compassionately over the preposterous state of mind betrayed by such a demand, and with a fresh burst of abuse of his brother and an assurance to the vicar's wife that he meant to give that old man notice when he got home, he wasn't going to have his blameless spiled for nought by an old idiot with a head as full of yale as a Eric's full of mice. He raised his whip, and the clattering vehicle moved forward. Jim, meanwhile, preserving through all his brother's wrath and Mrs. Thornburg's wailings the same mild and even countenance, the meditative and friendly aspect of the philosopher letting the world go as e'en it will. So Mrs. Thornburg was left gasping watching the progress of the lumbering cart along the bit of road leading to the hamlet at the head of the valley, with so limp and crestfallen an aspect that even the gaunt and secretly jubilant Sarah was moved to pity. "'Why, well, missus, we'll do very well. I'll have some scones and doffin in no time, and there's some finger-biscuits, and with buttered toast and some of their best jams, if they don't have enough to eat, they ought to.' Then, dropping her voice, she asked with a hurried change of tone, "'Did he ask how his daughter is?' Mrs. Thornber started. Her pastoral conscience was smitten. She opened the gate and waved violently after the cart. John pulled his horse up, and with a few quick steps she brought herself within speaking, or rather shouting, distance. "'How's your daughter to-day, John?' The old man's face, peering round the oilcloth hood of the cart, was darkened by a sudden cloud as he caught the words. His stern lips closed. He muttered something inaudible to Mrs. Thornburg and whipped up his horse again. The cart started off, and Mrs. Thornburg was left staring into the receding eyes of Jim the Noodle, who from his seat on the near shaft regarded her with a gaze which had passed from benevolence into a preternatural solemnity. "'He's sparing of his speech, is John Backhouse,' said Sarah grimly, as her mistress returned to her. "'Maybe he's about right. It's a bad business, and he'll not mend it with taking.' Mrs. Thornburg, however, 
could not apply herself to the case of Mary Backhouse. At any other moment it would have excited in her breast the shuddering interest which, owing to certain peculiar attendant circumstances, it awakened in every other woman in Longwindale. But her mind, such as are the limitations of even clergymen's wives, was now absorbed by her own misfortune. Her very cap-strings seemed to hang limp with depression as she followed Sarah dejectedly into the kitchen, and gave what attention she could to those second-best arrangements so depressing to the idealist temper. Poor soul! All the charm and glitter of her little social adventure was gone. When she once more emerged upon the lawn, and languidly readjusted her spectacles, she was weighed down by the thought that in two hours Mrs. Seaton would be upon her. Nothing of this kind ever happened to Mrs. Seaton. The universe obeyed her not. No carrier conveying goods to her august door ever got drunk or failed to deliver his consignment. The thing was inconceivable. Mrs. Thornburg was well aware of it. Should William be informed? Mrs. Thornburg had a rooted belief in the brutality of husbands in all domestic crises, and would have preferred not to inform him. But she had also a dismal certainty that the secret would burn a hole in her till it was confessed, bill and all. Besides, frightful thought, would they have to eat up all those meringues next day? Her reflections at last became so depressing that with a natural epicurean instinct she tried violently to turn her mind away from them. Luckily she was assisted by a sudden perception of the roof and chimneys of Burwood, the Leyburn's house, peeping above the trees to the left. At sight of them a smile overspread her plump and gently wrinkled face. She fell gradually into a train of thought as feminine as that in which she had been just indulging, but infinitely more pleasing. For with regard to the Leyburns, at this present moment Mrs. Thornburg felt herself in the great position of tutelary divinity or guardian angel. At least, if divinities and guardian angels do not concern themselves with the questions to which Mrs. Thornburg's mind was now addressed, it would clearly have been the opinion of the vicar's wife that they ought to do so. "'Who else is there to look after these girls, I should like to know?' Mrs. Thornburg inquired of herself. "'If I don't do it, as if girls married themselves. People may talk of their independence nowadays as much as they like. It always has to be done for them, one way or another.' Mrs. Leyburn, poor lackadaisical thing, is no good whatever. No more is Catherine. They both behave as if husbands tumbled into your mouth for the asking. Catherine's too good for this world. But if she doesn't do it, I must. Why, that girl Rose is a beauty. If they didn't let her wear those ridiculous mustard-coloured things and do her hair fit to frighten the crows. Magnus, too, so ladylike and well-mannered. She'll do credit to any man. "'Well, we shall see, we shall see.' And Mrs. Thornburg gently shook her grey curls from side to side, while her eyes, fixed on the open spare-room window, shone with meaning. "'So eligible, too. Private means, no encumbrances, and as good as gold.' She sat, lost a moment, in a pleasing dream. "'Shall I bring out the tea to you there, Mum?' called Sarah gruffly from the garden door. "'Master and Mr. Ellsmere are just coming down to field by stepping-stones.' Mrs. Thornburg singled assent, and the tea-table was brought. Afternoon tea was by no means a regular institution at the vicarage of Longwindale, and Sarah never supplied it without signs of protest. But when a guest was in the house, Mrs. Thornburg insisted upon it, her obstinacy in the matter, like her dreams of cakes and confections, being all part of her determination to move with the times, 
in spite of the station to which Providence had assigned her. A minute afterwards, the vicar, a thick-set, grey-haired man of sixty, accompanied by a tall younger man in clerical dress, emerged upon the lawn. "'Welcome, sight,' cried Mr. Thornburg. "'Robert and I have been coveting that tea for the last hour. You guessed very well, Emma, to have it just ready for us.' "'That was Sarah. She saw you coming down to the stepping-stones,' replied his wife, pleased, however, by any mark of appreciation from her mankind, however small. "'Robert, I hope you haven't been walked off your legs.' "'What in this air, cousin Emma? I could walk from sunrise to sundown. Let no one call me an invalid any more. Henceforth I am a Hercules.' And he threw himself on the rug which Mrs. Thornburg's motherly providence had spread on the grass for him, with a smile and a look of supreme physical contentment, which did indeed almost efface the signs of recent illness in the ruddy boyish face. Mrs. Thornburg studied him. Her eye caught first of all by the stubble of reddish hair, which, as he took off his hat, stood up straight and stiff all over his head with an odd wildness and aggressiveness. She involuntarily thought, basing her inward comment on a complexity of reasons, "'Dear me, what a pity! It spoils his appearance!' "'I apologise, I apologise, Cousin Emma, once for all,' said the young man, surprising her glance, and despairingly smoothing down his recalcitrant locks. Let us hope that mountain air will quicken the pace of it before it is necessary for me to present a dignified appearance at Muirwell. He looked up at her with a merry flash in his grey eyes, and her old face brightened visibly as she realised afresh that in spite of the grotesqueness of his cropped hair, her guest was a most attractive creature. Not that he could boast much in the way of regular good looks. The mouth was large, the nose of no particular outline, and in general the cutting of the face, though strong and characteristic, had a bluntness and naivety like a vigorous, unfinished stitch. This bluntness of line, however, was balanced by a great delicacy of tint, the pink and white complexion of a girl, indeed, enhanced by the bright reddish hair and quick grey eyes. The figure was also a little out of drawing, so to speak. It was tall and loosely jointed. The general impression was one of agility and power. But if you looked closer, you saw that the shoulders were narrow, the arms inordinately long, and the extremities too small for the general height. Robert Ellesmere's hand was the hand of a woman, and few people ever exchanged a first greeting with its very tall owner without a little shock of surprise. Mr. Thornburg and his guest had visited a few houses in the course of their walk, and the vicar plunged for a minute or two into some conversation about local matters with his wife. But Mrs. Thornburg, it was soon evident, was giving him but a scatterbrained attention. Her secret was working in her ample breast. Very soon she could contain it no longer, and, breaking in upon her husband's parish news, she tumbled it all out pell-mell, with a mixture of discomfiture and defiance infinitely diverting. She could not keep a secret, but she also could not bear to give William an advantage. William certainly took his advantage. He did what his wife, in her irritation, had precisely foreseen that he would do. He first stared, then fell into a guffaw of laughter, and as soon as he had recovered breath, into a series of unfeeling comments which drove Mrs. Thornburg to desperation. "'If you will set your mind, my dear, on things we plain folks can do perfectly well without,' etc., etc., the husband's point of view can be imagined. Mrs. Thornburg could have shaken her good man, especially as there was nothing new to her in his remarks. She had known to a tea beforehand exactly what he would say. She took up her knitting in a great hurry, 
the needles ticking angrily, her grey curls quivering under the energy of her hands and arms, while she launched at her husband various retorts as to his lack of consideration for her efforts and her inconvenience, which were only very slightly modified by the presence of a stranger. Robert Ellesmere, meanwhile, lay on the grass, his face discreetly turned away, an uncontrollable smile twitching the corners of his mouth. Everything was fresh and piquant up here in this remote corner of the North Country, whether the mountain air or the wind-blown streams, or the manners and customs of the inhabitants. His cousin's wife, in spite of her ambitious conventionalities, was really the child of nature to a refreshing degree. One does not see these types, he said to himself, in the cultivated monotony of Oxford or London. She was like a bit of a bygone world, Miss Austin's or Miss Ferrier's, unearthed for his amusement. He could not for the life of him help taking the scenes of this remote rural existence, which was quite new to him, as though they were the scenes of some comedy of manners. Presently, however, the vicar became aware that the passage of arms between himself and his spouse was becoming just a little indecorous. He got up with a <coughs> intended to put an end to it, and deposited his cup. "'Well, my dear, have it as you will please. It all comes of your determination to have Mrs. Seaton. Why couldn't you just ask the Leyburns and let us enjoy ourselves?' With this final shaft he departed to see that Jane, the little maid whom Sarah ordered about, had not, in cleaning the study for the evening's festivities, put his last sermon into the waste-paper basket. His wife looked after him with eyes that spoke unutterable things. "'You would never think,' she said in an agitated voice to young Ellesmere, "'that I had consulted Mr. Thornburg as to every invitation that he entirely agreed with me that one must be civil to Mrs. Seaton, considering that she can make anybody's life a burden to them about here that isn't. But it's no use.' and she fell back on her knitting with redoubled energy, her face full of a half-tearful intensity of meaning. Robert Ellesmere restrained a strong inclination to laugh, and set himself instead to distract and console her. He expressed sympathy with her difficulties, he talked to her about her party, he got from her the names and histories of the guests. How Miss Austenish it sounded! The managing rector's wife, her still more managing old maid of a sister, the neighbouring clergyman who played the flute, the local doctor, and a pretty daughter just out. "'Very pretty,' sighed Mrs. Thornburg, who was now depressed all round, "'but all flounces and frills and nothing to say.' And last of all, those three sisters, the Leyburns, who seemed to be on a different level, and whom he had heard mentioned so often since his arrival by both husband and wife. "'Tell me about the Miss Leyburns,' he said presently. "'You and Cousin William seem to have a great affection for them. Do they live near?' "'Oh, quite close,' cried Mrs. Thornburg, brightening at last, like a great general, leaving one scheme in ruins only the more ardently to take up another. "'There is the house,' and she pointed out Burwood among its trees. Then, with her eyes eagerly fixed upon him, she fell into a more or less incoherent account of her favourites. She laid on their colours thickly, and Ellesmere at once assumed extravagance. "'A saint, a beauty, and a wit, all to yourselves in these wilds?' he said, laughing. "'What luck! What on earth brought them here, a widow and three daughters, from the south? It was an odd settlement, surely, though you have one of the loveliest valleys and the purest airs in England.' "'Oh, as to lovely valleys,' said Mrs. Thornburg, sighing, "'I think it very dull. I always have. A woman has to depend for everything on a carrier that gets drunk, too. 
Why, you know, they belong here. They're real Westmoreland people.' "'What does that mean, exactly?' "'Oh, their grandfather was a farmer, just like one of the common farmers about. "'Only his land was his own, and theirs isn't.' "'He was one of the last of the statesmen,' interposed Mr. Thornburg, "'who, having rescued his sermon from Jane's tender mercies, "'and put out his modest claret and sherry for the evening, "'had strolled out again and found himself impelled, as usual, "'to put some precision into his wife's statements. Uh, "'One of the small freeholders who have almost disappeared here, as elsewhere.' The story of the Leyburns always seems to me typical of many things. Robert looked inquiry, and the vicar, sitting down, having first picked up his wife's ball of wool as a peace-offering, which was loftily accepted, launched into a narrative which may be here somewhat condensed. The Leyburns' grandfather, it appeared, had been a typical north-country peasant, honest, with strong passions both of love and hate, thinking nothing of knocking down his wife with the poker, and frugal in all things save drink. Drink was, ultimately, however, his ruin, as it was the ruin of most of the Cumberland statesmen. "'The people about here,' said the vicar, "'say he drank away an acre a year. He had some fifty acres, and it took about thirty years to beggar him.' Meanwhile this brutal, rollicking, strong-natured person had sons and daughters, plenty of them. Most of them, even the daughters, were brutal and rollicking too. Of one of the daughters, now dead, it was reported that, having on one occasion discovered her father, then an old, infirm man, sitting calmly by the fire beside the prostrate form of his wife, whom he had just felled with his crutch, she had taken off her wooden shoe and given her father a clout on the head, which left his grey hair streaming with blood, after which she had calmly put the horse into the cart and driven off to fetch the doctor to both her parents. But among this grim and earthy crew there was one exception a hop-out-of-kin, of whom all the rest made sport. This was the second son, Richard, who sowed such a persistent tendency to book-larning, and such a persistent idiocy in all matters pertaining to the land, that nothing was left to the father at last but to send him, with many oaths, to the grammar school at Winborough. From the moment the boy got a footing in the school, he hardly cost his father another penny. He got a local bursary which paid his school's expenses, he never missed a remove or failed to gain a prize, and finally won a closed scholarship which carried him triumphantly to Queen's College. His family watched his progress with a gaping, half-contemptuous amazement, till he announced himself as safely installed at Oxford, having borrowed from a Winborough patron the modest sum necessary to pay his college valuation, a sum which wild horses could not have dragged out of his father, now sunk over head and ears in debt and drink. From that moment they practically lost sight of him. He sent the class-lists which contained his name among the firsts to his father. In the same way he communicated the news of his fellowship at Queen's, his ordination, and his appointment to the headmastership of a South Country grammar school. None of his communications were ever answered, till, in the very last year of his father's life, the eldest son, who had a shrewder eye all round to the main chance than the rest, applied to Dick for cash, wherewith to meet some of the family necessities. The money was promptly sent, together with photographs of Dick's wife and children. These last were not taken much notice of. These Laburns were a hard, limited, incurious set, and they no longer regarded Dick as one of themselves. "'Then came the ill man's death,' said Mr. Thornburg. "'It happened the year after I took the living. 
Richard Leyburn was sent for and came. I never saw such a scene in my life as the funeral supper. It was kept up in the old style. Three of Leyburn's sons were there, two of them farmers like himself, one a clerk from Manchester, a daughter married to a tradesman in Winborough, a brother of the old man who was under the table before supper was half over, and so on. Richard Leyburn wrote to ask me to come, and I went to support his cloth. "'But I was new to the place,' said the vicar, flushing a little, "'and they belonged to a race that had never been used to pay much respect to parsons. "'To see that man among the rest! "'He was thin and dignified. "'He looked to me as if he had all the learning imaginable, "'and he had large, absent-looking eyes, "'which, as George, the eldest brother, said, "'gave you the impression of someone that had lost something "'when he was no but a lad, and had gone seeking it ever since. "'He was formidable to me.' But between us we couldn't keep the rest of the party in order, so when the orgy had gone on a certain time, we left it and went out into the air. It was an August night. I remember Laban threw back his head and drank it in. "'I haven't breathed this air for five and twenty years,' he said. "'I thought I hated the place, and in spite of that drunken crew in there, it draws me to it like a magnet. I feel, after all, that I have the fells in my blood.' He was a curious man— a refined-looking, melancholy creature, with a face that reminded you of Wordsworth, and cold, donnish ways, except to his children and the poor. I always thought his life had disappointed him somehow. "'Yet one would think,' said Robert, opening his eyes, "'that he'd made a very considerable success of it.' "'Well, I don't know how it was,' said the vicar, whose analysis of character never went very far. "'Anyhow,' Next day he went peering about the place and the mountains and the lands his father had lost, and George, the eldest brother who had inherited the farm, watched him without a word, in the way these Westmoreland folk have, and at last offered him what remained of the place for a fancy price. I told him it was a preposterous sum, but he wouldn't bargain. "'I shall bring my wife and children here in the holidays,' he said, "'and the money will set George up in California.' So he paid through the nose, and got possession of the old house, in which, I should think, he had passed about as miserable a childhood as it was possible to pass. There's no accounting for tastes. And then the next summer they all came down, interrupted Mrs. Thornburg. She disliked a long story, as she disliked being read aloud to. Catherine was fifteen, not a bit like a child. He used to see her everywhere with her father. To my mind he was always exciting her brain too much but he was a man you could not say a word to. I don't care what William says about his being like Wordsworth. He just gave you the blues to look at. It was so strange, said the vicar meditatively, to see them in that house. If you knew the things that used to go on there in old days, the savages that lived there, and then to see those three delicately brought-up children going in and out of the parlour, where old Laban used to sit smoking and drinking, and Dick Laban walking about in a white tie, and the same men touching their hats to him who had belaboured him when he was a boy at the village school. It was queer. "'Curious little bit of social history,' said Ellesmere. "'Well, and, and then he died, and the family lived on?' "'Yes. He died the year after he bought the place. And perhaps the most interesting thing of all has been the development of his eldest daughter. She has watched over her mother. She has brought up her sisters. But much more than that— she has become a sort of Deborah in these valleys, said the vicar, smiling. I don't count for much. She counts for a great deal. I can't get the people to tell me their secrets. She can. There is a sort of natural sympathy between them and her. 
She nurses them, she scolds them, she preaches to them, and they take it from her when they won't take it from us. Perhaps it is the feeling of blood. Perhaps they think it is as mysterious a dispensation of providence as I do that that brutal, swearing, whisky-drinking stock should have ended in anything so saintly and so beautiful as Catherine Leyburn. The quiet, commonplace clergyman spoke with a sudden tremor of feeling. His wife, however, looked at him with a dissatisfied expression. "'You always talked,' he said, "'as if there were no one but Catherine. People generally liked the other two much better. Catherine is so standoff.' "'Oh, the other two are very well,' said the vicar, but in a different tone. Robert sat ruminating. Presently his host and hostess went in, and the young man went sauntering up the climbing garden path to the point where only a railing divided it from the fellside. From here his eye commanded the whole of the upper end of the valley, a bare, desolate recess filled with evening shadow, and walled round by masses of grey and purple crag, except in one spot, where a green intervening fell marked the course of the pass connecting the dale with the Alswater district. Below him were church and parsonage, beyond the stone-filled, babbling river, edged by intensely green fields, which melted imperceptibly into the browner stretches of the opposite mountain. Most of the scene, except where the hills at the end rose highest and shut out the sun, was bathed in quiet light. The white patches on the farmhouses, the heckberry trees along the river and the road, caught and emphasised the golden rays which were flooding into the lower valley as into a broad green cup. Close by, in the little vicarage orchard, were fruit-trees in blossom. The air was mild and fragrant, though that a young man from the warmer south there was still a bracing quality in the soft western breeze which blew about him. He stood there, bathed in silent enchantment, an eager nature going out to meet and absorb into itself the beauty and peace of the scene. Lines of Wordsworth were on his lips. The little well-worn volume was in his pocket, but he did not need to bring it out. And his voice had all a poet's intensity of emphasis as he strolled along, reciting under his breath, It is a beauty's evening, calm and free. The holy time is quiet as a nun, breathless with adoration. In the quiet shelter of its protecting trees, he stopped, and a delicate sense of harmonious association woke in him. That girl, atoning as it were by her one white life, for all the crimes and coarseness of her ancestry. The idea of her seemed to steal into the solemn golden evening and give it added poetry and meaning. The young man felt a sudden strong curiosity to see her. End of Book One, Chapter Two